the real energetic liberty, which annihilates the priest's cage of human freedom, is refused at the level of the political secondary process during the precise period in which the economic primary process is slipping ever more deeply into its embrace. The deep secret of capital as process is in its incommensurability with the preservation of bourgeois civilization, which clings to it like a dwarf riding a dragon. As capital evolves, the increasingly absurd rationalization of production for profit peels away like a cheap veneer from the positive feedback destination of production for production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with introducing today's guest, just want to mention that we have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there or leaving us a nice review on iTunes. We have Nicholas Blinko joining us. Author, screenwriter, received his PhD at Warwick University. We um, at least textually looked at Making It With Death, Remarks on Thanatos, Desiring Production from Nick, Nick Land. But I think we're going to delve into a little bit of lore, let's say, of uh, Nicholas's experiences at, uh, at Warwick. But Nicholas, we're so pleased to have you on. And thank you so much for, for joining us this, uh, what it be this evening for you, I, I believe, right? Just to give some background on the genesis of this podcast, this is something that I think is just really interesting relative to Twitter because, you know, I hadn't even realized that you, I wasn't aware of you at all and that you were following <laughs> the account and so forth until you uh, commented on my my quarterly post about how libidinal economy is a uh, is a great work of literature. So I just have to just throw this out as an example of where Twitter can actually have some positive impacts, just as the way that, you know, Taylor and I wouldn't know each other if yep. it wasn't for Twitter. So just to... <laughs> Yeah, Twitter bringing people together exactly. rather than it's, tearing them apart. It's, it's a rare occurrence, but when it happens, it's wonderful. Economy now means a lot to me because I was there when Ian Grant was translating it. Ian Excellent. Was, was kind of my best friend at the time while I was studying at Warwick, and we were both taking French classes to try and improve our French. We had to read a lot of French philosophy because we were doing PhDs in French and German philosophy. Neither of us were particularly great linguists. So we were taking courses in philosophy, uh, French for philosophers. And okay. Slowly reading The Outsider by Camus. And I think <laughs> Ian said, you yeah, kind of fuck this. I'm going to, I'm going to translate Economy Libid now, which we, yeah. we'd only been introduced to kind of a week before by Nick Land. I, I <laughs> heard of it. Nick Land is one of the few that I've seen right on libidinal economy, at least in English. And, you know, there is that interesting temporality where Leosar kind of recants or maybe distances himself from that period of his writing. But at the same time, it obviously has 
it obviously comes at a time in French philosophical thinking that is so important. You know, there's these years after the failed revolution in May 68, mm. also kind of in dialogue, not explicitly, but implicitly with anti-Oedipus. And um, so libidinal economy is, I mean, it's definitely been a work that Cooper and I spent a lot of time working through. And it's it's so rich and so dense, but also kind of frustrating because it's not necessarily, Leotard doesn't want to make a declarative statement. It's really for us to to even question wanting to take theoretical implications, right? There, there hey, is we, this... we lost you there for a moment. You might want to back up and start over. Oh, I, I was just saying that that Leotard, even in that work, is even questioning the value of trying to extract theoretical implications at all and, and questioning that that move of theory. So there is something frustrating about it, and yet at the same time, so rewarding. Yeah. I just think the relentless blow of the right i mean it's just it's just madness of the pen it's incredibly relentless just beautiful beautifully done sorry to cut you off nicholas go ahead um i saw you quoting bits were quoted from it and it really brought back you know remember looking over ian's shoulder as he was translating <laughs> it he did a fantastic job uh, oh yes he did he did i guess it was important for nick land i mean i can't speak for how nick lands the genesis of nick lands thought but he did seminars on economy libid now, believe. I certainly remember him talking about it a lot. And the idea that a Marxist critique that's entirely positivist with only, you know, only positive nodes, no dialectics, no negativity. I mean, that's, that is his um, whole project, really, isn't it? It was there in that cold open, the, um, yes. the positivist feedback loop. This way in which, what production for profit is is tenuously tied to this feedback loop of production for production's sake. Yeah. That is an interesting theoretical implication, and and it's it's right there at the very beginning of Anti Oedipus, right? The laying out the syntheses. In any case, I guess that why don't we um, go back? You've mentioned you're taking classes with Nick Land. You've mentioned your friendship with Ian Hamilton Grant, but we would like to know about sort of your own introduction into philosophy and what motivated you maybe what are some of the texts that grabbed your attention that sealed the deal that made you want to go deeper into philosophy into literary theory you know tell us a little about your intellectual story i'd left school at uh, 16 it wasn't a particularly good school and i got bored and i went to local art college but oh wow um, i was always always had ambitions to be a novelist so going yeah. to art college was just a way to kind of hang out, mm -hmm. hang out with artists. And yeah. now they'd be forced to go and work. And there weren't really any, there were very few jobs around anyway, especially for an uneducated, um, a 16-year-old. There wasn't really any work around. I didn't want to be forced into work. And I yeah. didn't want to, it kept my parents on my back, staying in education. <laughs> yes, exactly. And art college was a huge amount of fun. By the time I'd started a degree course in fine art at Middlesex Polytechnic, as it was then in London, I'd just exhausted any interest I, I had in art. And I really always was quite academic and began thinking about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do with fiction. And my favourite my favorite novelists were all quite conceptual, like B.S. Johnson and Italo Calvino. Okay. And novelists that I kind of had a problem with 
which at that point, for some reason, I don't know why, I had a problem with Kerouac and Lawrence. And I was thinking, well, part of my problem is they're a bit thick. Yeah. And obviously, they're not thick, but this was my thinking at the time that I've got to do a much more conceptual, take a much more conceptual track here. I fixated on doing philosophy and literature and what it was one of the places that, that offered this, almost the only place that offered it. So I went to, I managed to get in there with very, very poor exam results but they had a little little exam that was almost jokey set by an American expat called Rick Gakowski who's now a rare book dealer and um, crime writer but back then he was the professor there he set this kind of jokey jokey little exam and I got in and it was yeah it was so fantastic that I kind of lost interest I never lost interest in writing novels, but I lost interest in the literature side a bit and got much more interested in, in the philosophy side. Interesting. And um, so who was there? Um, well, the professor was David Wood at the time, who was a Heideggerian, Husserlian, Hermeneutician, you know, that kind of guy that there's nothing wrong with him. And he was obviously an inspiring professor, but he just wasn't my kind of person. But yeah, but I found out about the whole landscape of continental philosophy of him. And there was an, a much more influential guy on me, was Andrew Benjamin, who yeah, yeah. is a, he was an Australian and he's gone back to Australia. So I'd, I did a course with him where it was so unpopular. There were only two of us, I think, doing the course <laughs> okay. on Hegel's right. So we just basically read right, no, right and Fichte. And something else, I think Pat Schelling, very, very slowly for an entire year. Yeah. So I got a very good grounding in German idealism, thanks. Yeah. And he also taught Walter Benjamin. I think that was the coincidence of the names. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I've also got a huge grounding in uh, the origin of German tragic drama, which is Mm -hmm. a phenomenally difficult text. But again, I read it very, very slowly with Andrew Benjamin. I really enjoyed my my time there. I'd, I was still in bands and I toured for part of my third year. I was touring touring the UK with a, a hip hop band. And that kind of fell apart at Christmas. Uh, just, you know, musical differences as, as they <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I suddenly realized that I would actually like to get a good degree. And I had to, had to really work nonstop for, from Christmas till June to get a good degree. And it became obvious that I was going to get quite a good degree and I might even get a first. So um, I applied to do a doctorate and I, it all worked out. Doing postgrad philosophy has really kind of shaped my whole life, even though I've not never been an academic philosopher. I've never, never taught philosophy. I've mm-hmm. taught a little bit as a PhD student, but I've never really taught Right, it. right. And I've never written it, but it's been the kind of, the thing that's changed my life the most, that's shaped my life the most. And it just got, it got even more exciting in the postgrad years. Just before we came on, I looked at Nick Land's Wikipedia page and it said that he came to work in 87, but I'm fairly sure that's wrong. I'm fairly sure you, it was after I'd finished my first degree. Okay. So it must've been like 89 or something. Mm-hmm. So as I finished, Nick Land came and that suddenly opened up a whole new world because oddly, I just... I don't think I'd even heard of Deleuze. I'm not quite sure why, but um, there wasn't a specialist there. I'd done a little bit of Nietzsche, some Kant. I hadn't done any Deleuze. 
we'd looked at leotard because of the postmodern condition, but I'd never heard of it. Right, that makes sense. So Nick opened up a whole new world and, and had a very kind of programmatic view of what this world was, which was a, his own reading of Kant and his own reading of Deleuze. And very quickly, he set up a, a series of seminars that were that basically taught anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus from his particular standpoint that it was a version of Kantian critique. I'm not sure that I can even comment on that now, how true that is, but it, it was incredibly, <laughs> it, it was a, a forceful series of, a forceful reading, and it, it meant that we all got really quite a good grip of anti-Oedipus, which is, a, yeah, it's a fairly difficult. It's a very difficult text, yeah. And it makes sense that around that time, Logic of Sense would only come out in 1990 and Difference yeah. of Repetition wouldn't come out till 94. So yeah. it makes sense that at that time, A Thousand Plateaus would have just come out in translation from Masumi in what, 87, yeah. 88. So it makes sense that Capitalism Schizophrenia would be the, the center point more or less for a, if you will, a systematic exposition of what Deleuze is getting at. It was an incredibly systematic exposition. And because we just weren't able to get hold of really any other text by Deleuze, he was able to, he had a free hand to tell us what it really meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, I think he's right in emphasizing Deleuze's debt to Kant. He simultaneously gave us a picture of Deleuze as the philosopher of the outside, which I don't think is is really you know quite correct. It was it was always Nick wishing this. It was a wish fulfillment thing. I mean, I can remember him saying, as he got frustrated with a Derridian in class one day, he said, "Well, what's the big deal about thinking the outside? Just step outside. Just be outside." And <laughs> um, you know, he always thought that he always seemed to think the outside was just very easy to think. Some of his papers that I remember well, but I can't seem to find anywhere. There was one called Putting the Rat Back in Rationality, (laughs) uh, which was trying to look at the whole history of philosophy as a kind of plague rather than a rational process, more a kind of infectious pestilence that was attacking the body politic from outside. (laughs) And one of the heads of the department, who was an Anglo-American philosopher, of the piece, and a Methodist. Oh, um, gosh. They say, well, I don't understand this at all. I mean, can, how does this relate to human consciousness? And, and Nick Lang would say, well, human consciousness, obviously, is a very important thing to, to study, like um, unicell organisms or spermatozoa or whatever. But it's not the only thing to study, and I'm going to study the outside. I'm just not interested in human humanity, human consciousness. And, you know, the guy was obviously aghast. But There's a certain uh, Nietzschean ring to this notion that, that consciousness is a plague, for example, mm. right? That it's, it's, it's the most superficial, it's a herd instinct, blah, 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 right? You know, that you can kind of see radicalizing or taking further or continuing that line of thought from mm. Nietzsche's, some of the things he says about yeah. consciousness. Yeah, that, that really is ringing bells with me. That's the way that Nick was talking about uh, Nietzsche at the time. Yeah. Coop, did you, did you have a reaction? I, I may have cut you off there. Maybe you'd like to back up and hear about 
your hip hop project, Nicholas, if you're whatever oh, you're yeah. willing to discuss, because I think this is, I mean, just you screenwriting, a novelist interested in philosophy, a hip hop career like this is this is just incredible, I think. I'd always played in bands. They were punk bands. In the end, there were just two of us. And so we had to kind of be a punk kind of folk band. It wasn't practical to have more people, but just having two of us meant that we could always get on the bill with other people. We, we didn't have to sound check. We were happy to turn up places. So we played a lots, of gig, lots of gigs around the place, especially with a band called Big Flame, which is named after a, a radical libertarian socialist party of the 60s and 70s. But a Big Flame, incredibly choppy, atonal, punk style band of, of yeah. in the early mid-80s in Manchester. But then hip-hop was coming in, and we were getting more and more interested in hip-hop, and in the end, we just switched to hip-hop. I mean, that partly, I guess, under the influence of the Beastie Boys, we were getting there yeah. as they were coming over. This is before their first album came out, and we were just, you know, we were paying like £10 for a 12-inch single on <laughs> import. Um, and obviously, LL Cool J and Public Enemy mm-hmm. from that kind of Def Jam period. So we just, we switched to being um, a hip-hop band. We had an advantage. There was um, a pop star in our hometown who'd been to school with the guy playing guitar and later programming drum machines, a pop star called Lisa Stansfield, who had a big hit with Around the World or something in the late 80s. And she had a recording studio in her garage, which she kind of outgrown. So we were able to borrow that. We did a recording. We sent it to the local record company, which is Factory Records in Manchester. So we signed to Factory Records. They were the label for bands like the Happy Mondays and New Order and had been for Joy Division. Gotcha. Then we toured toured that, but it didn't last very long. But I did a gig last summer, actually. (laughs) That was the first time in 30 years. Oh, wow. Although it didn't last long, the record label also owned a nightclub. And being part of the label meant that I got into the nightclub tree. So that turned out to be the great advantage. As Acid House and rave culture took off in Manchester, I had free entry into the into the nightclub in Manchester. That, that was the heart of it in the UK. And this was while while I was doing my PhD, I'd been at Warwick because I did my undergraduate at Warwick. Yeah, I got fed up of living around there after three years, so I moved to Manchester for the first first two years of my PhD and um, hung out at the Hacienda and just commuted to Warwick. And then had to move to Warwick in order to move back to Warwick in order to finish it. Yeah. And I guess this is relevant only to the extent that Acid House was a kind of influence on that, became an influence on the schizopolitics, schizoanalysis type of tip we were all heading along because there was just an enormous amount of drugs (laughs) all of a sudden. And there was a new way of a kind of new language. The, The language of madness seemed more appropriate all of a sudden. Uh, we've yeah. also come out, out of what seemed like a very long economic depression. Right. Economics were changing very rapidly. So I think everyone, all philosophies have been in for all two economics to a degree since Adam Smith or Hume or earlier. Yeah. It particularly pertinent at that time. I, I can't speak for Nick Land, but certainly listening to Nick Land at that period and reading Economy Libid and Ali, it all seemed incredibly appropriate that it was drugs, madness, economics, a new version of Marxism. I don't know how, 
how much you've touched on Bataille when you've been talking about machi- the machinic unconscious. But I mean, Nitlan was actually working on on his book on Bataille. Virulent nihilism, or is that what it's, or thirst for annihilation? Thirst for annihilation, yeah. Thirst for annihilation, and so don't think it's really Freud at all. It's it's just pure Bataille. Interesting. With Freudian coating on it, and that was incredibly important. You know, it was because it was economics again. He was talking about Bataille was talking about general economy. And yes. just at a personal level, grunge was starting too. And there was a big song, Black Hole Sun. And that's yes, yes. <laughs> that's a nice tie into Bataille, right? Just a nice, yeah. happy coincidence. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm sure they, they weren't reading Bataille. It almost felt as though they were. I mean, right. that yeah. was, I mean, what we were doing was reifying energy, whether it was the libidinal band from yep. now, or whether it was just this kind of huge excessive production of bataille or whether it was you know the schizo flows across the body without organ of the lures it's an energetics and yes it's yes. possibly a metaphysics of energetics that would be the criticism of it and um i read some vincent Descombe around this time who'd also been it had been in the same political party as um as a leotard Socialism or Barbary. I think I believe Leotard was kicked out of the group for writing Economy now. Oh, really? Yeah. So this was the Libertarian Socialist Party. And to be kicked out of the Libertarian Socialist Party for writing this scandalous book. But Decom has a criticism of it that it is it's an energetics. It's just saying all energy is good, wherever energy goes is good. You know, where is the critique? It's it's just reifying energy and destruction. And there was, always was that element to it, and it really needs the um, the Kantian critique side or a Nietzschean critique side to to kind of bat away though that kind of criticism. I think that that's probably a straw man of libidinal economy, but we don't have to get into the the weeds of it, especially since Leotard later disowns it to a certain extent. I don't think it's necessarily energy is good in and of itself, right? Or that it's kind of like you see critiques of this with anti-Oedipus, that it's, you know, desire for its own sake. It's more about it's liberating desire and these other things when it's actually much more complicated and it doesn't simply fall into like Foucault's critique of the repressive hypothesis, right? That we just need to liberate desire and everything will be good. I think that it's it's actually much more nuanced. And I uh, see the same with Leotard. It, it certainly w- wouldn't be good because, you know, things like the death drive, it's quite destructive. Yeah. But, um, riding that, well, yeah, again, this cold open that we did, it's riding that dragon seemed to be, you know, all we were interested in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you need the critique on top of it and we can decide how, how much teeth the critique has and how, much, how it works. I mean, in the 90s, it would have been a totally different beast. I mean, I think even as early as a few, as recent as a few years ago, you know, I guess just the way that the outlook for the future seems to be affirming this stance on on the zero, on death that Nick is talking about in, in this piece, to be honest, whether that's, I feel sort of like he's vindicated to some degree in some of this now i i don't know about his uh his steps on making oneself a nazi or um or whether policing the nazi in your head is bringing you in closer to pr- proximity to nazism than than mm. destratifying too quickly i don't know if i would if i would necessarily say that but i think in terms of super organismal death drive seems to be where we're 
kind of heading as you may concerned. I do remember this paper making it with death from back in the day. But it was interesting reading it again that he does talk about, he does anticipate criticisms by talking about the Tucson destratification. So Deleuze warns that, you know, if we destratify too fast, we risk a more savage recoupment. If you think that Deleuze has white holes and black space, if we destratify too fast, we'll just collapse into a black hole and it's going to be much, much worse for us. And Nick is already anticipating he's taking issue with that, isn't he? And say, no, no, that's really not, destratification is not going to be the problem. So you can see, you, the piece anticipates accelerationism much more than I expected. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, and he anticipates what might have been a delerging objection to accelerationism, and, and he, he's addressing it already back in this piece, which must have been, and is it dated? I would guess it's 92 or 92. I think it's 92. It's around that, 92, 93, I believe. Yeah. yeah. You asked me whether Nick Lang was the PhD advisor from hell. He? <laughs> he wasn't at all. He was he was a great PhD supervisor. I've got this enormous affection for him, even though I'm a, I'm kind of appalled by by the right wing turn that he took. I, as Ian is, Ian Grant is too. But the Nick Lang that we remember, I mean, you know, he's not really much older than than I am. I think he's it he would only have been three years older. So having a PhD supervisor who's only three years older than you. <laughs> who is so articulate, so into his stuff. He was very, very geeky. I mean, you did feel that you you were dealing with somebody who just stepped out of his bedroom and hadn't, hadn't done anything else other than read Nietzsche and Kant and Deleuze. <laughs> and I think he went, he was almost uh, crazy. You know, he he was released and he he came out, he came out like a whirlwind, like a Tasmanian devil. But um his only problem as a PhD supervisor was that he became an incredible stoner. So <laughs> he really could be completely stoned. So, yeah, huge dope smoker. But So is that what he needs is maybe a little bit less of the methamphetamines, more of the marijuana? Is that particularly? I don't, I don't know to what extent he did take a lot of speed. I mean, okay, he, okay. he just was a speedy guy. And I would imagine that, the, that he smoked dope as a kind of... Um, Even uh, you out? Yeah, to even himself out or, you know, to deal with anxiety because also... Of course. He was in a, an academic structure that he really wasn't cut out for at all. It was amazing he got the job and he got the... You know, there was a lot of discussion about who's going to get this job. It's one of the plum jobs. There's very few continental philosophy jobs in, in the whole of Britain at that time. They were only going to be at three <coughs> universities, which was Essex, Warwick and Sussex, or maybe Middlesex. There was just no jobs and he got the job and it was because he was regarded as the most brilliant, brilliant guy of his generation. He came from Essex. He was very close to a guy called Jay Bernstein, who I believe is back in New York now. He's a Hegelian Adorno type of philosopher. Uh-huh. Incredibly charismatic lecturer, but um, you know, an Adorno expert. And he, I know that he, <laughs> Nick Land's, you know, he'd recommended Nitland to David Wood. And I think the department thought they were going to get, in many ways, a Heideggerian. Yeah, Heideggerian, yeah, because of his dissertation. Yeah, I've never read the dissertation. On Trakel's poetry and whatnot, right? So he seems like a hermeneutic Heideggerian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I was surprised it was on Trakel because my memory was that it wasn't, I mean, it must be on the Trakel because that's its title. Yeah, but my memory is that it was on Hild- the Hildelin 
essay. Interesting. Okay. 343 as much as any. So, I, you know, the, there is that touch of fascism already there. Yeah. Yeah. He seems like he would fit into a into the the safe continental, right? That, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a big surprise that he went. He was a very popular lecturer and incredibly energetic, charismatic, yeah, and, and nuts in, some, <laughs> yeah. in some really appealing way. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because we were all nuts at that time. Right. You kind of already mentioned that with the rave scene, with yeah. uh, your artistry background. And, and that was the time of, for better or worse, in Delisiana, if you want to use that phrase, which I know is weird, but in, in Delisian studies, at that time, with capitalism and schizophrenia being the principal text, there is this schizo writing that is perhaps too much privileged, but that kind of dates the uh, some of the literature. And I think that what's interesting about Land's writing is how much he sort of both undercuts that and takes it to an extreme at the same time without sort of glorifying the mode of presentation for itself. I think he definitely takes his style from leotard and libidinal economy i would say yes quite a bit that's kind of the impression that i get reading you know everything is that it's sort of like drawing from that relentlessness of that right work or rather yes uh there's also you know the more sword and sorcery at end of nietzsche and also i guess lovecraft that type. yeah yeah these weren't things that i was very interested in i mean i always (laughs) I always thought that my taste in literature was, you know, far, far superior to, to Nick Lowndes, whether <laughs> that's fair or not. I mean, I really did think, Christ, you really are a kind of you know, <laughs> sword and sorcery nerd. Although I like his writing, I, my memory is that his lectures were even better because he could come out with these phrases. And if they were great, they would appear in, in the writing. It was kind of less dense. It was always happy to take questions. I mean, he really is super bright and certainly was super bright at the time. And he just knew the text so well. So his seminars were really quite open, but would contain these phrases that were just, you know, jaw dropping and would illuminate, illuminate a text. Then when he got down to writing, it was maybe too dense or maybe too, you know, look yes. <laughs> a bit too much. I mean, I can't even pronounce Cthulhu, but um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit too much of that for my taste. It does make sense that, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, it does make sense that someone like Deleuze would draw you in. I mean, we've talked about, you know, Coop has already praised Leotard's writing, but there is a sense in which Deleuze doesn't get at least oftentimes in the at least the philosophical circles i know there are texts that counteract this but a lot of times Deleuze doesn't get enough credit for the prominence with which he treats literature you can see this mm-hmm. from the start in anti-oedipus you know his treatment of michaud of beckett of joyce mm-hmm. of a lot of the anglo-american writers lawrence you know as you already mentioned so i i could see how someone even just like the three novellas plateau from a thousand plateaus, I could see how someone like Deleuze would be a breath of fresh air for someone who also privileges the creative aspect. Yeah. Um, I already knew Seisha Massock, for instance. I knew yeah. quite well just because of the Velvet Underground song. So I'd read the book and then I discovered that Deleuze had actually written on the book. So I'm, that's a very, very important essay for me. But I was always interested in 
I was interested in literature, aesthetics, politics. And because I'd done literature and philosophy, you, you would expect that. What changed meeting Ian Grant, who had done his undergraduate degree somewhere else, so started his PhD at exactly the same time as me. So we started together and realising immediately that Ian had absolutely no interest in these questions, aesthetics, ethics, politics. He was only interested in, you know, what's the basis of reality? What's (laughs) What's the start of the universe? And it sounds crazy for me to say it now because, you know, philosophy has always dealt with these questions. Yes. I've never met anybody who was interested in that. Ian was was absolutely the first person to be interested in that. And you can see why he became a speculative realist. He was really looking for it. And why he responded so strongly to Nick Lamb, because Nick Lamb always wanted to think the outside. Yeah, yeah. He was champing at the bit for this, um, you know, against the Kantian uh, Kantian spectacles, I guess you would call it. Whereas I hadn't even noticed I was wearing them particularly. I was just interested in talking about literature. Or how philosophy is already always already entangled with all of these other disciplines, yes, all these other yeah. creativities. I mean, even with, with what is philosophy, Deleuze's thinking philosophy as creation, as concept yeah. creation, rather than even if he always claimed to be a metaphysician, he's not performing these traditional platonic gestures, for example, of, you know, of, of the wonder that there is something rather than nothing or or something about the origins because for Deleuze the origins is all is always already repeated they're similar to, to Derrida and but perhaps in a different way so I think those those kind of questions get get yeah. contrasting Derrida and Deleuze would really get at what I'm talking about I I immediately liked Derrida yeah because he was I actually don't like any of the literature Derrida likes I you know I just don't like his taste in writing, but he's a very careful, yeah, he's a very careful reader. And he was a he was a professor of history of philosophy. And this was very much where I was coming from. I was interested in text and I was interested in the history of the text and their yeah. you know, historicity. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I was being confronted by Nick Land, Ian Grant, who were interested in, you know, the machine of unconscious. How are these things material? Yeah. How is thinking material? How is writing material? How is desire material? Especially how is yeah. desire material? I do like that. And with books like Economy Libidinal, there, there were very strong answers to it. You could go Hegelian and say, well, it's material because it will, because thought is the only process of history. But mm. clearly that's kind of crazy. A cop out. <laughs> yeah, it's a cop out, but it's <laughs> It's so wrong-headed, mm-hmm. but fanatically interested in pop music. Well, why is something a hit? It's and it's because people run out and buy it because they have to buy it. You know, production and desire meant something to me immediately, but I'd not put it into a philosophical context. Yeah, and um, economically, Bidnell did that. There's that phrase from the Doors. The little girls understand, and I, the cramps reused it. And it's that idea that, you know, we're, we're all men stroking our chin talking about philosophy, but what's really happening here? And it's, you know, it's things like girls running out to the record shop and buying this stuff. Or in our case, it's uh, we're little girls running to Libgen downloading, you know, thousands of PDFs that we'll, <laughs> yes, exactly. we'll, we'll, we'll read very little of. That's a good way to put it. And 
you know, you, you help concretize because I was thinking if Ian was so interested in these questions about the origin of, of reality, blah, blah, blah. Why would he translate these two texts from the guitar <laughs> yeah, right. and, and Baudrillard? But you were able to square the circle and bring it back to the materiality of whether it be desire or the libidinal band, et cetera. You described your writing as being conceptual in terms of, I'm assuming you mean as far as your novels are concerned, but perhaps that extends to writing for the screen. As, uh, as pretentious as this is going to sound, you know, I, I kind of think of myself more, I think of a storyteller than, than anything. I mean, I think that's really for me where it's at, but I think storytelling as a, as a methodology of doing philosophy is what really grabs my imagination. And so narrativizing theory, working in that sort of milieu is what I personally really enjoy. That's why I find something like I've been like browbeating Taylor with uh, all these Dune references to Deleuze and Guattari, et cetera. And that's because I just, I don't know, I just, that's kind of where the way that I work through things. So I'm just kind of curious as someone who is credited as the, as the founder of a, a literary movement, new puritanism, yes. new puritanism, rather, I'd just be interested to hear about you know, your writing, your your approach, etc., how philosophy works into that, whether it be, like I said, novels or, or for the screen, etc. My early novels are crime fiction, so I'm, I'm as interested in genre as you, but not I was not interested in science fiction. And what crime fiction did for me, going back to the 80s, it's a way of describing cities, uh, describing cities, especially cities at night, cities collapsing, changing. Crime fiction was appealing in a kind of postmodern way. It's got rules. It's a genre. You can make it deconstruct itself. Right. But on top of that, it's always about the police. And my PhD thesis is on the relationship between politics and economics. And I borrowed a bit of Derrida where he says that something like the dialectics is always a detour inside of the truth. On the economic, the economic process of the dialectic is always a detour inside of the truth. And I took this, I took this as a kind of not quite facetiously, but not entirely genuine either, to say oh. that Derrida is arguing that he's doing economics. And everyone who does economics is trying to do politics through the back door. Interesting. Because politics is, is an impossible project trying to think of the city which is of the state is so complex there's so much happening there you can't get a hold of the forces that make it but you look at economics and you you think well these are the forces that make it but you're always trying to make these forces come back around and return to politics and they probably won't do it would be the battalion aspect of that but also a marxian aspect and I guess also um, a Nick Landian side, because Nick Land is, is arguing that, I got, and I got this off a podcast last week, he was saying that there's this huge reactor core that's, that's going to burn and the, the police or the society is just always trying to damp it down. That's what a society is. It's, it's damping it down. I guess I had an image like that in my head when I was saying that we're trying to wrestle these economic forces, these dark economic desires, yeah. And trying to make them mean a stable city, but they're never they're never really going to quite do that. It's always metastable, right? It's always yeah. sort of out of sync with any equilibrium. And, and this this reminds me of the Thousand Plateaus when they define 
societies in terms of their zones of power, which are meant to prevent flows from leaking, right? Meant to prevent yeah. desire from leaking. So, but yeah. the other thing I was thinking of was- I think uh, that's where Nick Lamb probably got it from. Yeah, and, yeah. And insofar as I was writing crime fiction, I was thinking, you know, I'm writing about cities at night, I'm writing about cities that are violent. Well, crime fiction became a way of describing Manchester, basically, because Manchester was going through this huge upheaval. We had Acid House. One of the bigger things was that we also, the gay village in Manchester, which had existed since the 1950s, had been very much underground, but quite large. I mean, there were quite a lot of clubs and bars that were part of the gay village and, and were known about. But throughout the 80s, they were continually raided by the police. So you got a very, you kind of got a violent confrontation in the nighttime. And but by the mid 90s, the gay village, the police had been beaten back by the town council, by a new understanding of gay culture, by the success of things like Acid House, yeah, Factory Records. And we got rid of our a particular police chief. And suddenly the underground became the engine of change. That's great. And people came to Manchester purely because it had a gay village. And then our, our Mardi Gras was the best Mardi Gras. And, you know, the nights out in the Manchester gay village were the best nights out. And seedy bars turned into quite chic nightclubs or interesting interesting and um, so that was certainly two of my three early crime novels were just purely about that how did the underworld become the the engine of change and how yeah. did the city change through that and crime fiction was felt to me the best way of doing it but it was always shot through with these economic i mean i would have been writing about ec- economics anyway I put, i'd probably put my well, I certainly put together the idea of my PhD before I met Nick Land. But then meeting Nick Land and reading Economy Lived Now and spending you know, so much time with Ian Grant and, and you know, other people. I, there are people who went on to teach at Central St. Martins, like Jamie Brassett, John O'Reilly. I'm trying to think who else was there. It was quite a big department, but those are the people I was closest to. And we were all writing about OVR economics. State. Yeah the city that's how we came out of the Nitland experience <laughs> i mean this is great because I'm, I'm also thinking of in the preface to uh difference repetition deleuze is talking about a good book of philosophy should be part science fiction which obviously tickles coop's taint and part <laughs> detective novel because it is about investigating it's not only about creation but the creation is always already tied to an investigation of problems and of, of sort of elaborating problems and determining them mm. in cases of solutions. Well, actually, that would be my problem with science fiction and not all science fiction, but it does seem books that I really don't like, like 1984, for instance. It yeah. sets up a problem as an allegory, describes it, and the book itself is the proof of concept. Interesting. It seems to me that bad science fiction just isn't literature it's a kind of facsimile of literature interesting because it's just setting up a problem that it that it then proves its way of talking is right it can be to use a kind of modern word it can be mansplaining it can actually feel (laughs) mansplaining i've changed my mind about science fiction but only really quite recently because i've seen i've come in contact with arab futurism and Afrofuturism. And yeah. I can see that if there's absolutely no way of describing your historical reality because it's been squashed out by 
colonialism or racism or something. Yeah. And then science fiction becomes incredibly powerful. Interesting. But it's not powerful really describing a problem. It's this kind of machinic way of forcing people to, to see problems differently. Or, yeah. Yeah, seeing things differently. There's a fantastic Afrofuturism display at the moment. And I was married to it for a long while to a Palestinian filmmaker called Leila Sansor and her sister Larissa Sansor is getting quite well known as an Arab futurist and that's really changed my mind about science fiction. I can see just how powerful it is but in the past I've been kind of a bit snotty about it. Sorry Cooper. (laughs) One thing that you mentioned Nicholas that I thought was kind of interesting and I think sort of applies to me is like if I'm writing or if I'm making a film I think what I'm really what I'm really doing is trying to sneak the philosophy in the back door. And I mm. think if that's not done very deftly, then it can become this very, like you said, rote, machinic, didactic process, mm. which I think even you know Frank Herbert's writing or approach can get into that. I think particularly in like a couple of the works are very much sort of him just using these characters as a mouthpiece for his own sort of personal philosophy. Although it does, it does ask some interesting questions, I think. I think particularly in rel- in relation to like these machinisms, right? Because one sort of interesting thing about the universe that Dune is set in is that there's this aversion. They had the Butlerian Jihad, so they outlawed machines. And it's not only machines due to fear of like an AI takeover, but this process of the human becoming instrumentalized and taking on the characteristics of the machine and losing touch, which I think is just an interesting approach. You don't really get that perspective so much, particularly with science fiction, right? It's always, you know, typically it's, there's sort of a utopian element or there's, you know, other things are going on. It's not really digging into the way that history moves, the way that societies and institutions evolve. And that is what I think is so very compelling about Dune, broadly speaking. I just don't know Herbert that well at all. I don't know the Dune universe. I would be thinking about the more Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe style angle, where you knew, know the guy is just elaborating Christianity. Really, yeah, Christianity. Yeah. So, and, right. you know, yeah, Lord of the Rings. And Lord as of well. the Rings in the same way. But actually, and I should have I should have said this much earlier, William Gibson was hugely important at the time. Everybody was reading William Gibson in the department. We were barely writing on computers. You know? <laughs> I didn't get a computer until until the 90s. And before that, if you wanted to use a computer, you had to book time in the maths department and use oh wow, yeah. You know, the mainframe computer. So suddenly in the early to mid-90s, we were suddenly all all had email accounts. The world that Gibson had already been describing suddenly seemed real. So that right. you know the world did seem to be accelerating in that kind of way. It really was happening overnight. We Nobody had a computer. Most people were writing their essays longhand because in England, there's no tradition of men typing. Really? <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Absolutely none at all. Women learn to type at school if they're going to be secretaries. So even intelligent, you know, not intelligent, but middle-class women who've gone to good schools don't learn to type. Only working-class women learn to type. Absolutely nobody types. So we were still handwriting all of our essays. And then suddenly overnight, we all had... Well, absolutely horrible computers that you won't have heard of, made by a company called Amstrad. But um, we were suddenly had computers, and we thought we were living. We thought we were on the verge of the William Gibson world, and yeah, you know, in fact, we probably were. Yeah. Now, this is a fascinating point that you're making, and it's something that 
I think uh, is easily forgotten and something that I didn't know. And so I couldn't even forget. I just didn't know this, but this is something we talked about. Was it with John Rofe Cooper? It doesn't matter, but we were discussing the fact that when, you know, the, the opening line to a thousand plateaus, when they're talking about being a crowd, being a sort of a collective assemblage, one of the things that John Rofe brought out, and I believe it was John, if, if it was someone else and I apologize, but anyway, the fact that Fanny to Liz's wife was the one who would receive the manuscripts and type them out from mm-hmm. Guattari. So she was a part of that assemblage too. And she gets kind of sort of left out of the picture when in fact, she's a dynamic third to their writing assemblage. Yeah, the, the woman typist, it's a horrible image, isn't it? But I, mean, I, I believe it was a, you know, a fantastic relationship. It makes sense. And it goes to like, um, I'm thinking of, one of the more recent historical depictions of the rise of computer science with, for example, um, what the, the biopic with uh, Alan Turing and whatnot. And you kind of see, and also just depictions of women at like switchboards and a lot of that history that's sort of been forgotten or just been ignored or taken for granted comes out with more salience when we really do think about these underappreciated contributions, mm-hmm. these sort of trends in labor power. Mm-hmm. That was just an aside. I don't have anything to link it to, but that's, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I think part, and this is a different aside entirely, but I think part of the problem with, the, with Derrida and the honorary degree at Cambridge, the person who organized the petition against him was an American logician and virtually the only American logician. I've forgotten her name, which is a bit unfortunate. She's one of the only... American logicians, it was taken seriously by the American Academy at Harvard and Yale. Gotcha. And she'd been ludicrously patronized by the man and Derrida when he came along. Interesting. Uh, and the man dies, and it turns out that he was a, a Nazi. Simply. Yeah. Well, the woman, and I really wish I remembered her name, but um, she was, her parents were socialist Jewish trade unionists in New York. She's a self-made woman from a socialist background, manages to claw away through American academia and get respect for her you know, work on the identity of indiscernibles and that kind of philosophy. And she's patronised by the analytic group and she's patronised by Paul Deman. And she finds out Paul Deman's a Nazi and she just goes ballistic. And, you know, the man is dead, but she really goes for Derrida. But there's no, there also seems to be no way. Her anger comes out of a kind of, I believe, out, out of a history of being patronised and blinds her to, maybe blinds her to the way to who Derrida is. And certainly, you know, she, she didn't seem aware that he was Jewish himself. Is it Ruth? Yes. Farkin Marcus? Yeah, that's it. That's her. Okay, I just wanted to look it up just to, Clear that because I didn't want you to to have that you know uh, play. Yeah, I don't know how good an aside that is, but you know she was absolutely furious at the way that demand patronized us, and she saw Derrida as being this a charlatan in the demand mold. But, yes, but putting that petition together, she was asking people who to sign the petition who had patronized her all her life because she was <laughs> the only female logician, right? Oh, you know, one of only two, pretty much. I know that there was a period of 
let's call it scandal. At least I know there was some sort of, I don't want to say shame, but you have to think about Derrida, you know, first Heidegger, that mm. a lot of this comes more to the fore. I mean, even Liazar wrote a book on it, right? And then with the wartime journalism that comes out about mm. Daman, who was one of the ones who helped to popularize deconstruction to a certain yeah. extent, at least in the Anglo sphere. Right. I, I know, think he's absolutely key. And Derrida yeah. owed him, I've certainly felt he owed him so much. Yeah. And then it must have been absolutely devastating for Derrida to, to discover to what extent Demand had an incredibly shady past and continually reinvented himself and in each reinvention kind of buried things that were utterly shameful. Derrida tried to deal with that in his own way, and I don't think particularly successfully, but it must have been an utter shock to him. I agree. And it's Demand's techniques of reading, his techniques of reading rhetoric, allegory, and is all against the type of totalitarian framework of hermeneutics and in these other things. So I mean, I'm not sure. I've kind of read conflicting accounts. Obviously, you can just frame him as a Nazi, and there is something historically relevant to that, but there's the sort of methodologies afterwards that he tried to work out seem to try to either, you could say whitewash or try to, you know, forgive himself for that, but they they move in a totally contrarian direction from the types of fascistic totalitarian readings that one would assume. So there is this, you know, I'm not trying to forgive Derrida. I mean, I don't think there's anything to forgive. It's just that the types of method, methods that deconstruction foster are counter, completely counter to at least the political tendencies, you know, and... Um, yeah, but um, Paul DeMant, his work in America clearly isn't, isn't any kind of fascism, but it... Yeah. it it's a kind of urbane, liberal. He will make a text say something different and then make it mean something that's still, then again, he's still humanist. And these kind of things we were aware of and we were champing at the bit about. And, you know, you can really see that fury in Nick Lamb, perhaps more than anyone else, that he didn't want this humanist humanism to return. So smuggle it back in, yeah, yeah. The recoding that he that he discusses. Yes, absolutely. I think is interesting relative to because he does sort of maybe I should even read this bit of text here. Uh, let's see. Land seems to have a lower estimation of Guattari than I sort of anticipated. Taylor pointed out, you know, not a lot of Guattari had been translated at this time. Um, I think there was one thing as far as I know. Land writes, Deleuze's power stems from the fact that he succeeds in detaching himself from Parisian temporality much more successfully than most of his contemporaries, including even Guattari, which I think Guattari is much more of the a type of accelerationist, if you want to, I think we have to qualify that remark a little bit, but um, I think you can, especially contra Deleuze, I think there's a much more accelerationary I guess, vibe to Guattari. And I'm just yeah. curious, even just as an aside from this, if Guattari is someone that you've looked at any of his solo work, you know, obviously, like I said, the, the materials were probably not around during your PhD, no. but later on, if you have you engaged with any of his solo projects? No, I haven't really. I mean, I am interested in, you know, the history of Lacanian psychoanalysis yeah. post-Lacan. I'm good friends with a, a woman called Anushka Gross in England, who, who's one of our leading Lacanian analysts. And it's oddly Lacanian psychoanalysis does seem to be the richest form of just Freudian analysis these days. I, I don't know how schizo that is because it's actually quite respectable. It's becoming the academy. 
in a sense. Yes. These are good, hardworking, respectable analysts and they're Lacanians. No, I don't, really, I don't know enough about Grattari to comment on this, but I do want to comment on a bit because I'm not sure why Nick Land says this. And I don't think he's got any basis for saying this whatsoever. He certainly wouldn't have had at the time. So just by claiming that, it's a conceit, it's, it's a fiction in order to smuggle his own reading of Deleuze. Um, yes. Into the main, well, not into the mainstream, but into, into the seminars, into, into, into the literature. Uh, and it, it relates to something I said earlier that he believe he's saying that you can just think the outside. There is absolutely no problem in just thinking the outside. And Deleuze is already doing this. Because if you think death, and for him at this moment, there's no problem whatsoever thinking death as this indifferent heat death of the universe. You can already write from that. And even though it's in the future, it's already controlling everything. He's getting it from Bataille. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know to what extent he, he ever understood physics or does understand physics, but he gave an extraordinary talk on entropy in a friend's flat where he drew all over the wall and talked about, you know, at the end, there's just going to be a heat death and that's indifference and that's the death of everything. So it was already there. And this, is, this would have been 91 or 92. But I would, I don't think that's in Deleuze. I don't think it can be in Deleuze because Deleuze is an empiricist and he's reading things quite carefully. Yeah. When, when he's, if I can just... I hope this doesn't sound too naive. I'll just backpedal and give my idea of what I think Kant's doing and then what Deleuze is doing. Kant's not interested in talking about things. He's interested in talking about the relationship between things and the, mm -hmm. these the human spectacles. So it's a fantastically powerful critique of the world, but it keeps returning us to the human spectacles. And Deleuze is doing something different because his becoming never returns us to humans, but it returns us to things that he's actually pointing to, empirical stuff, whether it's a masochist or whether it's a becoming rat or whether it's, <laughs> you know, any of the various, the, the masochist stick in my head because I, that's one of the books I know the best. One or Many Wolves um, and the, uh, the Rat Boy. So he's always talking about becomings, but they're empirical becomings. So Critique allows these new becomings that are lines of flight. I didn't always feel, but I came to feel that Nick Lang was just leaping over this empirical bit where you actually look at stuff and read stuff and just leaping straight to death and say, well, it's all death capital. It's all this death in the way that I understand it, which is capital. How empirical is that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you skipped over the empirical bit, but maybe perhaps you, you would disagree. Well, it, it might be to emphasize the transcendental aspect over the empirical aspect, right? It, and to, to make death that, to give death the last word does seem to be perhaps an ethical, political paradigm. But to use a Lacanian term, I feel like this mention of Guattari is a kind of extimacy. There's a, you include Guattari to exclude him in order to focus your essay on Deleuze. It's, it's an interesting move because usually Guattari is just left out, even when capitalism and schizophrenia is the focus. So to bring up Guattari and then to just eject him immediately leaves room for never mentioning him again in the essay. And to make all of 
A Thousand Plateaus in Anti-Oedipus, the text that he cites from, and the, these reflections on death, that leaves any, that kind of wipes your hands of saying, well, this is all Deleuze, but it's... I, yeah, I think Nick Lang couldn't do that because I don't know how, great, how good his French was. And so I don't know what, what else he was reading. The only other text by Deleuze that was really out there was the book on Nietzsche, which Nick Lang didn't like. Interesting, yeah. So he loved Anti-Oedipus and he loved Thousand Plateaus and they're Deleuze Guattari, they're DG, they're always DG and there just wasn't anything else. Yeah. And also, if you're saying schizopolitics, schizoanalysis, that's never going to appear in Deleuze because yes. he's not a psychoanalyst. Yeah. He's never going to use that language, whereas Guattari is going to use it all of the time Yeah, because he's a revolutionary and a psychoanalyst. And Deleuze kind of, jettisons even the term schizoanalysis even when Guattari is still tearing with it so you know I, I think yeah. shortly it's after really Guattari word it, it would never have occurred to Deleuze in a million years would it yeah yeah even with his interest in Artaud it's just that's not necessarily where he would have gone with it and he calls into question the the viability of schizoanalysis I think in between the volumes or right after A Thousand Plateaus but even one of Guattari's last works schizoanalytic cartographies, you can see that Guattari is still trying to give cachet to this notion. So I think there is an interesting move of excluding Guattari while including him, you know, or... Uh, Exclusive you know. disjunction. Yeah, there's, well, <laughs> there's something going on. There's a, there's a... But in any case... Personally, uh, I find Lacan to be one of the most creative thinkers. So I think it's interesting that Land has an aversion to... Lacan and kind of wraps up his whole project as turning psychoanalysis into a structuralist parking lot. And he kind of goes against this claim from Guattari that it's Lacan that really, I think, schizophrenizes the signifier or whatever, like with, uh, he takes the, Guattari takes this idea, the objet petit a, and derives the machinic a from that, for example, which I think, to me, I think has a lot of uh, relevance. And I think it's interesting, like just on the, it's that Land being such a fan of Nietzsche would not be find Lacan himself fascinating because I think maybe if if not the sort of theoretically speaking that in his personal life, to me, in my opinion, Lacan is definitely a Nietzschean. Like he is probably he's one of the closest things we've had to sort of this Uber mention in quite some time. And I think he's really fascinating. Like I may even grant people that Lacan is a charlatan, but what he was able to achieve as a charlatan is something it's that's a great artistic achievement. Like it is this Nietzschean thing that he's achieved to make himself Lacan exceeds himself. This character that becomes Lacan is like this lar larger than the man. The map escapes the territory to some degree, I think. Yes, I think you've got to understand how little we knew of Lacan at the time. There was interesting. Um, but the bigger lectures just hadn't been translated or published even. The four fundamental uh, concepts of psychoanalysis would have been out in 78 or so. Right. And then there might have been encore in the 80s. But what you may have had some selections from McCree. But for the most part, you're right. There wouldn't have been a lot. Yeah. Right. And, and also things like big A, little a, it's clearly Hegelian. Interesting. Um, yeah. Nitland I think he's got such an affinity with Hegel. He will tell the history of the world 
and say where everything's pretending, he knows that he doesn't want to do it through dialectics. He wants a, posit- a positivist account. So I think he just ignored him. I mean, even his version of Bataille, which, you know, Bataille, all of his understanding of Hegel comes from those Kojev seminars of the 1930s. And I think Nitlan managed to expunge those from, uh, you know, expunge that master-slave yeah. stuff from his account of Bataille. If he's ignoring Lacan, I think it's because he, he's trying to ignore that Kojev legacy of right. master-slave through Bataille, through Lacan. You know, it, it's still there in Derrida. Which would be, again, the humanist reading of Hegel. Yeah. It's quite a savage reading of Hegel, isn't it? You know, it's putting conflict at the heart of Hegel. And, I mean, I guess the Hegel of the phenomenology is, is a kind of wild young man, but he's quite a civilised guy by, by, yeah. by later on in his life. But Kojev, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, which I'm not. I, I think you are. Because uh, he's, he's Lithuanian or Russian. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I, think that was, I think that was also a pen name. Interesting. I didn't know he was, that. He was a very odd character. I don't even know what his background in philosophy was. He was kind of weird diplomat, but incredibly influential with these, these papers that influenced Sartre too. So that Bataille, Kojev is saying that violence is at the heart, violence and alienation is at, is at the heart of Hegel. And this becomes a way of understanding Marx too. And I right. think a way of understanding Marx. For me, the reason Marx is materialist is because he puts violence into everything it's not the economics it's not moving stuff around the world or producing stuff really that makes it material it's we're having we're literally having class war all the time yeah so i I like that i personally like that that violent way of reading hegel which i don't think is necessarily very hegelian but that's the most influential one that's that you find in bataille and he's definitely there in lacan it's a very violent conflict between you know, the, the triumvirate of the self. It's also explicit in Walter Benjamin, you know, reading the, and you can see this in Derrida's reading of the force of law, right? That there's this founding violence and then there's this perpetuating violence and they're mm. sort of in tandem in order to keep the, let's say the state apparatus or whatever you want to call it functioning. I didn't actually know that in Walter Benjamin, but yes, I mean, and you can see that in not. Alters there and yeah, uh, yeah. Mascheret, who was mm-hmm. hugely influential, but people didn't tend to really write about. We'd all read their essays and we were all influenced by them. And we all all thought that ideology would just recoup everything. Maybe Nick Land's fear of humanism is just a, repeating that fear of ideology. Yeah, reifying e- e- ideology, right? Yeah, it will always recoup. We'll always be back in the box as the kind of victims of the of the power structure, well, not the victims, but the, you know, philosophy just ends up always being the spokesman of the most powerful people, even when we don't realize that we are. Yeah, the university discourse, uh, you were saying like how the Lacanians are, have become this respectable school, yeah. and that would be privileging the university discourse over the analytic discourse, which would be to sort of uh, mobilize a uh, kind of parroting, not parroting, but a revealing and sort of undermining of master signifiers. But I think this gets us to anti-Oedipus for a moment, at least, where you see this also continue in A Thousand Plateaus, where there is a, even if Deleuze was uh, influenced by, say, reading Capital and Althusser, there's consistent 
jettisoning of ideology as a conceptual category that I think is very against the grain and against the sort of time in which they're writing where ideology critique, the hermeneutics of suspicion would have been sort of climaxing to its height. And the way I've always tried to understand this, and I'm not sure if whether this is a Nick Land or if this is something that you engaged with in your studies, but the way I try to understand getting rid of ideology is that there's something in that that hides the play of desire or what they want to call desiring machines, right? There's desiring production. There's something that ideology explains away too much and almost presupposes itself. And so it's not a it's not a concept that is crystallized enough to determine problems in such a way to kind of get at the heart of what they are trying to articulate with this notion of the, you know, there's desire in the social and nothing else, for example. I didn't entirely follow all that and you did drop out. In I'm sorry. I'm not sure how to how to go back on that bit. I just meant that the Liz moving away from ideology as an yeah. explanatory category and a concept in order to sort of, if you will, dig deeper into the sort of machinic, the social and desire as as the two functions of reality. There's something more the, radical, if you will, by going against the grain and and jettisoning the notion of ideology as an explanatory category. That was the attraction then, and it still is the attraction, that you mentioned hermeneutics of suspicion. Yeah. I'm, I've heard that from Vincent Descombe and from Paul Ricoeur. Uh-huh. I'm not sure who invented it. If you're always doing hermeneutics of suspicion, you can end up being a bit of a conspiracy theorist. That Yes. You, know, you think that that's happening, but actually this is happening. But certainly at the best, Deleuze and Guattari are saying, you think that ideology is commanding everything, but no, desire is, and, and we can show you how, we can yes. show you, you know, it's, you think that the state is stable, but all these other things are in the state of becoming, finding lines of flight, and there's just much more, I would say, liberation going on there. There's much more freedom going on than, than a strict reading of the power of ideology would lead us to believe. If we were just all kind of alters there, Balibar and Mashere, we might think that we could never escape anything. But Deleuze and Guattari show that we're always escaping. And if, if we can grab hold of that, it's a liberationist project for me. And I know some, I believe Nitland has a lot of problems these days with that kind of language of liberation and emancipation and you know, political projects of that kind, which I still hold on to. I vote in elections. I campaign yeah. for political parties, I sign petitions. All the stuff that recoups, no, I, I mean, you hope that being a political activist has meaning and Deleuze and Guattari, for me, show ways that it can have meaning. And they, at least Guattari, if not Deleuze as much, Deleuze would have been more of the, maybe the Nick Land type staying in, in one's room and, and dropping out to a certain extent. But, you know, he did sign petitions as well. Maybe he didn't... <laughs> He got tired of uh, of going to communist meetings, but Guattari never flagged on that. That was something that I think energized him and kept him engaged, even if he never stuck with any one coalition for a long amount of time. You know, he was he was sort of always on the move and always sort of reforming, recreating different organizations and and sort of involved on all kinds of different fronts. And I think that's part of why dropping out the Guattari, just to get back for a second with what Nick Land does at the beginning of the essay, it, it kind of, it softens the edge that Deleuze 
profound with Guattari. It softens that politically engaged edge. Even if even if in deficit repetition and, and the critique of the image of thought has political implications, there's a sense in which Guattari makes Deleuze's political engagement and his theoretical contributions much more practically concrete, in mm-hmm. my opinion. I was talking with uh, Cooper via email about when Nick Land in this particular essay, Making It With Death, says rapid de-stratification isn't a problem. And then it becomes, a, he has to engage with Deleuze and Guattari talking about fascism. He's saying, well, this won't become fascism. Well, it won't become Nazism. But Deleuze and Guattari are giving a very concrete, specific link, account of how Nazism arises out of fascism, that Nazism is maybe fascism with a death drive. It's a very specific observation, which is rooted in French and German history. And in their own experiences as boys, you know, kids in the wartime France, it's very, very specific. And as you say, Guattari was all about the specifics. Mm -hmm. In Nick Land's hand, he takes seriously that Nazism is about death and then just runs with it as though, you know, it's it's no longer got any specificity. Right. No relationship to, to a history of fascism or... It's just another transcendental concept that is going to flog, right? flog to death, because everything has to be flogged to death. At the very moment when he's saying rapid destratification isn't a problem, he kind of shows why it might be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. Very Hegelian, right? It was very interesting, his argumentation about this whole, like, if you try to not be a Nazi, then you're just kind of doing a type of dialectics there, right? Oh, yeah. Which I thought was I- ironic. I never did Hegel with him, and I, I suspect that he he had been a huge Hegelian who rejected it all. Yeah, how I feel about a reformed Hegelian. Yeah, reformed Hegelian, <laughs> especially, especially if he was close to Jay Bernstein, who's very much a neo-Hegelian. Not to bring out the elephant in the room, but if we go by something that Nietzsche says, where a philosopher's life should be the greatest example. I mean, just as you you mentioned in passing, the sort of far-right turn that Nick Land has been on for, I'm not sure, the last decade, the last decade and a half. Yeah, about 10 years or so, roughly. Then that is kind of indicative of perhaps this, you know, taking too seriously this notion of sort of not combating the Nazi in your head or de-stratifying too wildly. I mean, I think that just to get back to the theoretical level, what Nick Land finds egregious in a thousand plateaus is an emphasis on relative deterritorialization over an anti-Oedipus, the seeming maybe even romantic idea of absolute deterritorialization, this accelerated deterritorialization. And he he doesn't like the caution that they keep bringing up in a thousand plateaus. But you know, when Deleuze talks about this in interviews, like in the Abbasidaire, he's talking about this notion that anti-Oedipus could have led to a kind of again, romanticizing of debauchery or romanticizing of, of almost a kind of hedonistic nihilism, which I, I think is a wrong reading, but, but in the wrong hands can lead to that type of reading and that type of condemnation. And so a lot of what they're arguing for in their caution when destratifying is sort of, it's not about sort of an unrestrained hedonic down spiraling, which is the sort of normal stereotypic path of what happens when one engages on that kind of line of flight is that it turns in on itself and becomes suicidal. 
Mm. Right. And I think that that's part of the, at least on Deleuze's side, I don't know as much on Guattari's reflections on this, but on Deleuze's side, he talks about in the Abbas Sedaire, he with this very pain look where he's like, look, I, I hope I didn't sort of promote this type of dissolution. He's like, look, if, if old men go on their hedonic, their benders and end up, at least they've had a life, but he's like, he's lamenting the fact that it's the young of the generations, the post sixties generations that, that sort of end up in the kind of nihilistic self-destruction that for him is something that he really seems to have moral compunctions about. When was he talking, giving these interviews? Well, that would have been in 89 with Claire Parnay. It was supposed to be televised after his death. So he's reflecting back almost 20 years on the initial reception of Anti-Oedipus. That would be my generation, really. And there were boomers had a life that looked as though we weren't going to have because unemployment was just so high. Yeah, Certainly in the early 80s. And there was, I mean, I I'm, was always reasonably enthusiastic about drugs, but there was a huge dark side that heroin was an enormous problem. The Afghan war just flooded Europe with heroin, cheap heroin. Eventually, I guess you got in America with uh, yeah. as well, the grunge artists. It's touching that Deleuze was worried about, about the darkness of our generation and, you know, how you could give an optimistic revolutionary account again, which has clearly been a struggle. We haven't particularly given one. There isn't really an optimistic revolutionary movement afterwards, or at least I haven't particularly seen one. I mean, In certain countries, you had certain indications like the Arab Spring, but those are exceptions to the rule, if you will. And obviously I'm older than you. I've become technically Generation X. I mean, I guess you're you're also digital natives in a way that right. I'm not half right. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think we're both mid. I mean, I didn't have a, the internet until I was 1997 or so. I was already I was like a freshman in high school, yeah. sophomore before I even had a computer. But I mean, we were oh. my we dad were somewhat was a, lower middle class or upper lower class or something. Yeah, like but that. but see, unlike you, Coop, my dad was a computer scientist, so I always had computers in the uh, in the house. I had internet, uh, nice. email. By the time I was ten, well, so well, I'm also a few years older. I'm like what three years older than you? As yeah, well? three years, three years older. Well, this leads me to a question about accelerationism. Do you think that acceleration is happening? I'm never sure that I actually believe it, but you know, I come from a generation that's prior to that. I'm writing at the moment about an ancestor of mine who became famous in the 1830s mm. because of the boom in publishing. So there, ah. there was an enormous explosion. There was a kind of a first information revolution in the late 1820s, 1830s. Yeah, yeah. And my ancestor became famous as a kind of figure of the working class. He was a kind of example of a working class man who'd had it tough. And in many ways, you know, that's the birth of popular culture through the first information revolution. And I do wonder whether we haven't really stepped out of a notion of popular culture. Is it really accelerating so fast? Are we really in an accelerationist world? Oh, I, I think so. How, I don't know how people would feel who were younger than me. I absolutely think so. I mean, just to look at my lifetime, very germane to this details that I was just discussing, you know, I've gone from going to the mall to shopping online from a computer to shopping from my while I'm on the go from my device and a one touch purchase. So, I mean, that's a banal example, but I think oh, relative really? to something like, I mean, 
something like Twitter, for example. Um, I mean, all the thing, all this Trump, the phenomenon, January sixth, climate yeah. change, all of this stuff. I mean, I'm, I think There's the whole the whole world seems to have blinders on relative to me. We've we've gone off the cliff. You know, it's like the coyote and ro- roadrunner. We haven't even realized that we've totally left any sort of solid ground, and that's what is absolutely terrifying is the inertia of history the centrifugal force of capital is the only thing keeping the whole thing from totally crumbling in upon itself the speed that it moves if it slowed down for a moment that's it it's over i think well (laughs) i'm gonna have to think about that but that's an eloquent way of um of countering me i mean i think about this relative to environmental destruction i mean you can see it happening on the fringes of empire, those are going to be the first dominoes relative to yeah. climate. We are headed towards legitimate civilizational level collapse, in in my yeah. opinion. It's just a matter of what what time scale. Well, we're talking about Nick Land. I mean, <laughs> yeah. why, why, how are we going to get dark? Right? I mean, come on. <laughs> no, but I I would add to what Cooper said. If if anything intelligent can be added to it, because it is, I think it is a, a dark confrontation. I think that's why the tendency is to sort of acknowledge it, but exclude it. I'm thinking of, for example, someone like Jordan Peterson, who wants to sort of say climate change, well, that's just that's just the natural order of things. And I think that that is, there's nothing more insidious perhaps than a naturalizing of, right. of acceleration in that sense, especially in the sense in which Cooper brought it up, which was in the, in the terms of capital, you know, that, that it's just a natural consequence of human flourishing or some rosy colored romanticizing my only thing would be that it does seem, I mean, in terms of you bringing up one of your ancestors and this notion of the information age, it does seem that if there is a sort of absolute tendency towards acceleration, as maybe Nick Land would say, there are, we can also kind of look at relative relative bubbles or frames of acceleration that can be at least somewhat differentiated, you know, and obviously form a continuum, but they have discrete emphases. I mean, you know, bringing up Twitter and this, just the social media boom right. is, is one example of accelerated communication and interaction. You know, obviously, I don't think something like metaverse is going to be the next thing. <laughs> but I mean, we, we this is part of the merit of science fiction is it helps us to perhaps project outward you know, and loosen our constraints of reality, which, as Zizek likes to say, it's easier to think of the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that part of the thought experiments that speculative realism foments, for example, that kind of science fiction is perhaps more necessary than ever to uh, to think these things through and extend the line of thought and including stuff that, that you're talking about with like crime fiction, because what is the ultimate crime then? Than humanity. The murder of the real. <laughs> well, the murder of the real on humanity's suiciding itself, right? Yeah. Right. You mind if we uh, end on that point? Yes. <laughs> Let me wrap up with this. I'll say that I think I think what Nick does, what he sees is that I think he sees capital as the ultimate pressure, the ultimate genetic predator. And I'm I'm aping from Frank Herbert. <laughs> here a little bit because uh, the God Emperor refers to himself as the ultimate predator. So he's really fixated on this Freudian notion of the death drive and the pressure raising the stakes to their absolute utter limits 
is the only way for humanity to sort of escape death. The pressures have to be absolutely relentless, and that's the only way you're going to be able to escape this uh, this trap of death, perhaps. But anyways. Optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a real pleasure. So thanks for that. Absolutely. We appreciate your time and sorry for keeping you uh, longer than anticipated. It's it's always the time flies oftentimes. Yeah. When, when we're, I mean, we had, we had such a great engagement and just really enjoyed talking with you. I didn't even know two hours had passed, but I do think that that a light note to end on, (laughs) if you will. Uh, um, At at the end of this, I'll send Cooper Ian Grant's email. There you go. That'll work. (laughs) That would be excellent. Once again, thanks to Nicholas Blinko for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour.